a very surreal kind of wave came over me where I, I remember shaking my head and thinking to myself that you know that can't be real I'm gonna I just need to I'll just stand up again and tried and again my leg moved and my foot stayed where it was and then and then a big wall of pain and I I knew immediately that my leg was was very broken. I'm Rebecca Huntington. You're listening to The Fine Line, real stories of adventure, risk, and rescue in the backcountry of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero. Backcountry Zero is a project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation. You can support this project and the volunteers at Teton County Search and Rescue by making an online donation today. Go to tetoncountysar.org slash donate. Thomas Galing moved to Jackson Hole to ski as much as possible. Although he worked mostly night shifts as a bellman at one of the hotels at Jackson Hole Mountain Resort, he wasn't a resort skier. Instead, he'd been busy logging 40-some days in the backcountry. He'd just successfully completed a traverse on skis from Teton Pass to Four Pines, a popular out-of-bounds area that's reachable from the resort. Legs tired from the long traverse, Thomas was looking forward to riding lifts on February 5, 2019. He made plans to meet up with friends and scrambled to borrow the shared employee ski pass, a perk that came with his job. But in all the excitement, Thomas broke one of his cardinal rules for skiing new terrain. Teton County Sheriff Matt Carr had just helped rescue a snowboarder injured in an avalanche in Granite Canyon, another backcountry descent. Then he got the call from Thomas's party. My name is Thomas Galing. I grew up in New Hampshire. I've been here in the Jackson Valley for about four years now. I started skiing in Vermont in college um, and really fell in love with it when I moved to Big Sky, Montana. And then the Tetons have really blown me away and fallen in love with it here. Hi, Matt Carr. I am the uh, Teton County Sheriff. And I've been living in Jackson now for since 1993. I uh, moved here as a ski instructor and I've worked at the village ever since I've been here in different roles and then worked my way into the ski patrol program and then pursued a career in law enforcement. I had skied at that point, I think 40 days or so in the backcountry, and it was just the first week of February. A number of my friends had always ragged on me for being a bit of a, a backcountry snob. Tom had been skiing pretty exclusively in the backcountry for a majority of that season. Uh, I was definitely far more comfortable with the terrain, skiing inbound, skiing uh, in the backcountry around JHMR. Um, and I was skiing with another friend of mine who grew up in the Jackson area, um, who was also fairly familiar with the territory. Gavin and Tom were kind of my most reliable ski partners. So my name is Henry Sollett, and I grew up uh, in Jackson, and I currently work with the United States Forest Service as a wildland firefighter. It wasn't really until high school that I started skiing outside of the boundaries of JHMR. After I went to college and came back to Jackson, um, I skied that area a lot and by the time by February 5th of 2019 I felt pretty familiar with the terrain so we decided that that was as good a day as any to to check out the resort we were a little slow out of the gates we're trying to meet up with a, a number of friends people were coming and going um, mostly skiing on the, the north side of the mountain in the morning I remember it being a, a bit of a, a rude awakening how much downhill skiing takes a toll on the legs. I was getting a little bit abused that morning. Um, it was virtually all new for me. And to a certain extent, I, I felt like I was along for the ride for most of that day. The other two friends who were involved ski at Jackson Hole Mountain Resort a lot, ski in the side country a lot, um, or the, the back country. Side country is a term that this story is a good example of something we should eliminate from our vocabulary. Those two guys had really good knowledge of, of the backcountry terrain um, and are all in that group are really competent skiers. So I felt good about the group and I think that bolstered the confidence of the group a lot. We've been skiing inbounds all day uh, and skiing the conditions. And I think that that kind of led to the level of comfortability and 
and almost a bit of complacency to the decision-making that came to the end of the day. And then I think a small break in the weather, you know, the clouds might have parted a bit and a few promising rays of sun came through. The idea found a little traction and then we started seriously considering whether we thought it would be viable to, to go south and, and maybe, maybe ski four pines. For most of the day, it was four of us. It was Henry, Solid, Gavin Hess, and, and Morgan McGlashan, all folks that have spent quite a bit of time here and, and know the resort intimately. There were a few others, Teague, Manley included, that were kind of back and forth throughout the day. And he did end up joining us when we, when we started booting south. It was one for the books, not only for the snow level in the valley and what we were gearing up to be a fairly epic season overall, but it was also one for the books for search and rescue in the fact that um, our short haul program was highly utilized that winter. Uh, we had a lot of rescues. In fact, that day, this was our second rescue. Uh, and the rescue earlier that day was actually on the granite side of the resort and took a couple of Jenny Lake Rangers in to complete that mission. And I had been uh, the forward ops on that mission. We were dealing with some pretty significant weather challenges. Uh, was not a good day uh, necessarily for helicopters to try to fly. It was a lot of frozen fog. Touch and go as to whether we were gonna be able to utilize a helicopter for, for either of these rescues. Sometime around noon that day, we received a call um, that came through our dispatch center for an injured snowboarder in Granite Canyon. And there was a known location, which was good. It allowed us to understand that when you're standing at the top of the Jackson Hole Mountain Resort, depending upon which direction you decide to travel, it often depends on whose rescue it's going to be. Granite Canyon side happens to be in Grand Teton National Park. Everything south of the resort is a county call. Uh, we immediately contacted the Park Service and spoke with the rangers that were on call that day, and we knew we had a rescue in process. It had started snowing a bit the night before, and there was some wind, the usual westerly winds, but they weren't too strong, and throughout the day, skiing on the upper mountain, we didn't really see evidence of, of wind slabs, and you know, found quite a bit of untracked snow and some steeper terrain, terrain that had some rocks and small cliffs, you know, places that you might expect to see avalanche activity. There weren't any major red flags other than just the, you know, the large snowfall. There was more significant risk for avalanche conditions because of the amount of snow that had taken place uh, or that had fallen. Um, but I thought that those risks could be mitigated enough and then of course one of the factors that was always contributing to us making that decision is we knew that the conditions because of the how much snow had fallen were going to be good that was motivating uh, and kind of probably obscuring some of the other things that we could have been focusing on in our decision making i suspect that the the bits of sunshine that we saw kind of tipped the scales and we were able to rationalize it a little more so with the weather seeming to clear. And there was quite a bit of talk about whether or not we thought we could ski it safely. We had talked about a few islands of safety that we thought we could ski one at a time to and watch each other down um, and not be in each other's slide paths. And I think all of those factors came together and we decided that, you know, we would head out there and kind of take it one step at a time and, and keep going until it didn't make sense to. And I think we started that conversation probably at three or so. And ultimately I think took the last tram up and, and started walking over. And my recollection is that we were kind of at the, at the top of Four Pines at the, the ski patrol cache there a little after four before we ultimately decided to, to ski that slope. We were a group of five, Henry, Gavin, Teague, myself, and then another gentleman who, who they were all friends with that I, that I did not know, and his name eludes me. There were, I think there were maybe two or three other parties on the boot pack out. Excitement was very high. It was, 
it was a bit of a wallow to get out there. Very deep, very deep boot pack over. I think the fact that we had been at the resort all day seriously affected my thought process and my decision making. And that was a, a major takeaway for me is even if the terrain is unfamiliar and you're with a, a confident and competent group to as best you can be an active participant and, and not and not passive. So it was a, a sort of collective high that we thought we could we could manage the risks and we would know there would be a substantial reward and a long virtually untouched run. And I think that for all of us that that reward outweighed the hazard that that we thought was there. Tom in particular has less experience with that terrain and less knowledge of, of the routes. So I think what's so unfortunate is that he was, I guess, the least informed on the decision and then had to face the consequences of our actions that day. This gang, they're all people that I, I really trust explicitly. Certainly very little kind of cowboy Yahoo culture we spent. We spent quite a bit of time all standing together in that cluster of trees, looking down the slope, trying to identify potential trigger points and, and places that we knew we wanted to avoid and also trying to establish places where we thought we could regroup safely and also maintain the longest duration of you know, direct eyes on watching each other ski. I think Teague skied quickly as well as the other gentleman and then Gavin went down and, you know, we watched them ski all the way and, and regroup in a little nook of trees. You know, the snow was, was deep. It was probably, you know, mid-thigh to waist deep. And they were hooting and hollering the whole way. It was very, very exciting. I was very keen to, to take some turns there. Just Henry and I still on the slope. And we kind of turned to each other. And he said, after you, it was very flat lighting the clouds had set back in a little bit and there's kind of the occasional snowflake falling but again very flat light that's one thing that really sticks with me and so for the most part it just looked like one big blank canvas just inviting fast skiing and so i started making turns and every turn was softer than the next so i started skiing faster and harder taking some big super g style turns and i do remember taking a left footer and kind of veering away from the tracks and i remember having kind of one split moment thinking that you know something looks a little funny here um, and then just a kind of flash of of pain and one big somersault through the air and then I landed on my back in the snow probably 20-25 feet below the impact and as with crashes of that nature it's kind of a, a few moments of just heart pounding adrenaline coursing through the body trying to pat myself down and my my leg hurt it hurt right out of the gates but you know I've taken some knocks to the shin and I thought you know I just, if I can just get up and and keep moving try to move my leg and I remember moving my leg but seeing my foot stay where it was a very surreal kind of wave came over me where I, I remember shaking my head and thinking to myself that you know that can't be real I'm gonna I just need to I'll just stand up again and tried and again my leg moved and my foot stayed where it was and then and then a big wall of pain and I I knew immediately that my leg was was very broken from where I was standing, it was you weren't able to see the feature that he hit uh, from above. So to me, it just looked like he was skiing through an open powder field and then pretty much exploded. Uh, I saw him go over the front of his skis and tumble once or twice. Um, we were able to call out to him. We were all spaced at a point where we could talk to him both from above and from below. And our first attempts at communication, he was pretty quiet, um, which wasn't a great sign. And then when he did finally respond, he mentioned that his leg was in pain. So at that point, I realized that there some sort of injury had taken place. Definitely didn't know the severity. I could hear them 
yelling up to me. I remember Gavin's voice in particular, you know, asking, are you okay? Are you okay? And I think I just let out a long moan and, and said, you know, my leg's broken. I think we, we've got to call search and rescue right now. So Henry still was above and he, as soon as he saw, he made his way down. So I skied a very different line and went kind of far out and away from him in order to not ski directly on top of him and ended up ski cutting right underneath him. He was uh, sitting on his, uh, sitting kind of with his pack upslope and his legs stretched in front of him with his hands underneath uh, his injured leg, cradling his leg. Uh, and I remember him being remarkably calm. He kind of looks up from where he was looking down at his leg, cradling his knee. And he says, Henry, I think I think I broke my leg. And at that point, as soon as I skied underneath him, I could see uh, that his snow pants had been torn open. So right around the shin area, I noticed that his snow pants were already open. And through that opening, I could see his tibia protruding from his leg. Uh, from a distance. Uh, so that point it became very clear to me, the severity of the situation. Um, but yeah, he was quite calmly told me that he th thought his leg was broken. And I remember thinking to myself, that is a, that is a mighty understatement. <laughs> he skied right up to me and I had a, I had a big rip in my snow pants, but I couldn't look down into it. And I, I remember his eyes kind of bulging and him nodding saying, yes, yes your leg is is broken meanwhile gavin and the others were starting starting to boot pack up but i think it must have taken them 15 or 20 minutes to just cover that you know 50 feet or so because of how deep the snow was there we were extremely fortunate in in having service so he was able to put the call into 911 but it seemed like very quickly they started mobilizing and and deciding whether or not it was viable to get the helicopter over. I know that it had been used earlier in the day for an incident in Granite. During that February storm cycle, the Tetons had just received 24 inches of new snow in 24 hours, with another 10 inches in the forecast. Avalanche danger was rated as high at all elevations above 7,500 feet. The weather early on that day was, was not conducive to flying a helicopter around and it was snowing hard and there was a lot of frozen fog and some very concerning weather. Um, it did, however, luckily it improved for the afternoon and there was an open window um, when we were able to get in eventually on, on his rescue. But the Granite Canyon, Canyon rescue was, um, it was just kind of touch and go the whole time. We were there staged with the, the helicopter uh, waiting for a break in the weather, trying to figure out if we could get in and get a quick rescue done and get out. Because one of our biggest concerns were putting ski patrollers into that dangerous situation. And, and quite honestly, that trying to run a rig out of those areas with the amount of snow uh, is very challenging. And so the helicopter was certainly the first choice. And not to get into that rescue too much, but we were able to sneak in make that rescue happen of the injured snowboarder that was caught in avalanche in Granite Canyon. And we were back at the hangar. I remember this very vividly. We were back at the hangar putting stuff away. And we all do that as a team, kind of put all the gear away and then we do a little debriefing, you know, how the mission go, what could we have done differently, what, what went well, those sorts of um, debriefings are, are very important to the team. Uh, especially when we're working with the Park Service. So we're all working together as one team. And I remember, I believe I was uh, pulling a rope out and, and laying it on the ground to let it dry from the former short haul. And it was about, I actually looked up, it was about 422. Uh, I knew it was late in the afternoon, but according to our records, it was about 422 that we received a call from Thomas's party. You know, the report came in, that it was a lower leg injury. We didn't believe it was avalanche related, but it was a, a, a collision with a rock and they were at the top of four pine. So I just, I skied into a baby head rock that was protruding out and up the slope at full speed and direct boot impact and my ski lodged beneath it. 
Um, and there was a pretty small little cliff band there that I just a kind of tomahawked over down, luckily into a, a deep pocket of snow right beneath it. Having skied that area fairly extensively, um, a couple of us looked at each other and were like, boy, I bet they came off the top of Four Pines at a high rate of speed and hit that rock pile right over the nose. Um, because of the amount of snow, I'm, I'm sure it was covered up or barely covered up, but it, it's a significant rock pile that's right off the nose of Four Pines. Um, and so right away, we had a pretty good idea of, like, we think we know exactly where this location is. And um, we know that they're high up on Four Pines. We know that it's 4.20 in the afternoon and, and ski patrol is doing their sweeps and closing the mountain down. And let's see if we can't figure out how to get in there so they don't have to send some patrollers out and which would have been a, a nighttime mission at that point. Uh, the one thing that we were fighting was um, darkness. And the end of the day, uh, our helicopters um, have what we call a pumpkin hour where we don't fly once, once the sun sets. Uh, we only fly for a half an hour after the official sunset. So we were certainly fighting that uh, in February. Um, short days um, and just do we have time to pull this mission off or are we gonna have to rely on, on, on ski patrol uh, to affect the mission, which is gonna be a, a long, if not all nighter to get it done. I had the most robust kit, including things like a SAM splint um, and a number of wraps and bandages to secure said splint, but I was lying on top of it and, and I probably ought to have just borne a little bit of pain to free up those materials. You know, immediately my, my judgment, my thought process kind of turned inward a little bit. So we ended up splinting with, I think, avalanche probes and I think a probe on one side of my leg and the shovel shaft on the other um, using ski straps and ace bandages and packing with you know spare gloves and I uh, did we had a, a couple of thermal blankets and and hand warmers so we were able to to bundle me up pretty well and the group kind of pig piled on top of me one of the most Pressing concern is that I did nick open my popliteal artery in the process. And I remember as soon as Henry came over, he could look down through a big hole in my pant leg and see both superior and inferior portions of my tibia sticking out through my leg. And he said there was, you know, a few moments of calm where he could just see the see the bone and see the fatty tissues and then and then it started spurting blood so i think blood loss was was kind of the immediate and, and most significant fear at least for me you know the helicopter was critical uh in this situation we we got a really good report from uh thomas's party i'm not sure who exactly was called it in but we had a, a known location we had a significant injury um we were also facing nightfall and so it was an opportunity again if we could utilize the ship we thought that that was the best way to have the best outcome on this mission to get in there uh, with a significant lower leg injury uh, sounded like a lot of bleeding going on time was of the essence and um, that's when that's when having the ship really pays off and makes a significant difference so we were we were glad to have that opportunity we thought we were in a safe location to wait for ski patrol we were a little bit worried about overhead hazard and we knew that there were still other skiers around so there was talk of trying to move down slope a little bit to get into the trees and i remember just trying to shift my weight a little bit and kind of feeling my bone the splintered ends ripping apart tissues in my leg and kind of immediately saying, you know, no, like, I don't think that we can move really at all. And so, you know, ultimately, we just kind of all pig piled and a number of my friends huddled down on top of me and covered me with hand warmers, fairly intimately sticking hand warmers, you know, in my armpits and on my belly and down my pants, um, and just kind of cuddling together, trying to trying to keep spirits high. I distinctly remember trying to come to terms with the fact that I, I very well might have to wait for a 
a patrol sled or a snowmobile. And even though, you know, word trickled down that search and rescue, you know, was mobilizing the helicopter, I was trying not to let myself hope for a helicopter rescue and, and try and, you know, just mentally prepare myself to be out there into the night and, and to have a long, bumpy ride down. But I guess there was some there was some joking and making light of how unbelievable those few turns were prior to prior to the wreck. And that that helped me through. It was decided that Dr. AJ Wheeler and myself were going to be the short haul crew that were going to be inserted on the mission, partially because when you have an opportunity to get a doctor in the backcountry, that's always about the best you can hope for. Um, and we knew that there was a significant injury probably a lot of pain involved. And, and if time allowed, um, certainly the opportunity to mitigate some of that pain is something that advanced medical, either paramedic or, or uh, in this case, an ER doc can, can be your best, best approach. Um, and then my familiarization with the terrain and, and the area, that's why the choice was made and, and we were ready to go. So one of the things that was really interesting for us is, and, and it really kind of led to a little bit of the future of what we've done with our program, is we did not have a secure heli uh, LZ at the village at that point. We do now, of course, um, through a partnership with uh, the county and, uh, and the resort area, we've secured a, an LZ out at, at, at Teton Village, which is a significant place for us to be able to stage and go. So in this particular rescue, we needed a staging point, and we knew that at four o'clock or 4.30 in the afternoon, the parking lots were full of the village on a powder day, and the traffic was pretty, uh, pretty unbelievable, even the village, or at least we suspected it was. So we quickly pushed out and had some deputies secure an area down Fish Creek where there's an open meadow. Um, it's really easy to secure the road there, and the plan was to leave from the hangar as quickly as we could, land the ship on the road at Fish Creek, again, assess the weather, rig the ship for short haul, and, and to take the mission from Fish Creek up to the top of Four Pines to insert uh, Dr. Wheeler and myself. Short haul is a technique that's utilized uh, in mountain rescue in particular. It's a way to deliver rescuers uh, to very technical terrain via um, being an external load on the helicopter, meaning that we're um, hanging from below the helicopter on a rope anywhere from 150 to 300 feet, depending upon which rope we select for given missions. And it's a way to deliver rescuers right to the site of a location where perhaps you can't get there either by ground or you, can't have, you don't have the ability to land a ship. The weather was still in and out. The whole time we were rigging, we're, you know, AJ and I were talking, we're like, well, we're going to try. We don't know if we can go. We'll just have to wait and see. And, you know, those decisions are made by uh, the pilot and the command staff. They're separate from the mission. They try not to be driven by the mission. You know, it's about, about rescuer safety and weathering, whether we can, can make it happen or not. We were, uh, Dr. Wheeler and I were both very anxious to go and try to make it happen because we knew what the alternatives might be. It wasn't until we took off that, that we actually were like, yep, yep, we're going to go for it here. Uh, and, and we were able to get enough of a weather window to, to make uh, at least a first approach uh, to try to get into the scene. There were a lot of ridgetop winds that were coming over the top of Four Pines that were affecting the ship. And again, the ship is about 150 feet higher than where Dr. Wheeler and I were hanging below it. It was not easy getting in. The ridgetop winds, I think, were more significant than Dr. Wheeler and I realized. We made an initial approach, and the pilot had to wave off. We couldn't get in. The winds were too high for her to keep the ship stable enough to safely land us. And I remember making a circle around a second time, and we're like, all right, we're going to try it again. And the second time, the winds were too much to, to drop us right at the scene, so we <laughs> we're pretty close right above circling right above the injured party but we, we just couldn't get there and you, you get this feeling of like geez we're so close is, is this going to happen on the second time down we were very close to the ground uh, when again the pilot had to abort and pull away uh, I remember us um, being almost pulled through uh, some trees uh, because it was 
we were close to the ground, but not close enough. So the second time around, we took a, a much larger loop around. I think the pilot was just trying to determine whether it was worth worth a third try, and it was really going to be our last effort. And if this didn't work, they were going to try to land us above so we could ski down to the location. But on the third attempt, um, she was, again, a highly skilled pilot and able to drop Dr. Wheeler and I in, I'd say approximately 10 feet, 10, 12 feet downhill from the injured, injured party. And uh, we were able to unclip and we were then on the scene, but <laughs> we were literally neck deep in snow when we unhooked from the ship and not having skis on because the skis were on our backs. Uh, it was quite a slog just to get that 10 feet up to where Thomas was. I, it literally felt like it was neck deep snow and, and we were wallowing to get up to, to that location. I was trying to not be too hopeful and kind of just stay within myself and, and kind of just, just deal with the pain and, and put on a, a happy face. But remember hearing the helicopter, hearing the blades, and as soon as I heard those, you know, I started to kind of lose that battle within myself and think help is coming like you know everything will be okay um and then it got a bit quieter um and then it got louder again and then quieter at that point i got i got very nervous and was thinking you know i was very aware of of the rapidly approaching darkness it's like you know maybe maybe they won't be able to land but as matt said you know as they made their their final approach remember you know, the wind just buffeting us from the helicopter and kind of all of us putting our heads together. And then the wind relented, the noise relented. And I remember kind of coming out of my reverie and seeing Matt and AJ, you know, battling their way up the slope. But to me, in my state, I, you know, I blinked and, and there they were, you know, kind of immediately taking control. I was just blown away at, at how efficient and competent they were issuing orders and you know just taking control and be curious to to hear Matt's perspective but felt like you know they inflated a big splint and then the harness was on me and, and it seemed like you know we were off the ground in, in no time at all. When we initially put down we unclipped from the ship and the ship took off which is it's a very quieting sound it's like you've got all this noise and all this action going on and snow buffeting up around you and then you unclip from the ship and it takes off and everything just settles back into the you know the natural environment and it's it's, it's a bit of a calming effect i'll certainly never forget uh this is one of the rescues for the books because as soon as we landed you know we've got full helmets full winter gear on and, and we're landing and, and the area quiets down and all of a sudden i hear this voice hey it's officer Carr." And, and I was like, wow, I, you know, I don't have any identification on here. I mean, I, you know, I'm in a helmet and I'm, I'm along with, with AJ, Dr. Wheeler. And then somebody goes, yeah, hey, it's Officer Carr. Hey, it's, it's Teague. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Teague, Teague Manley. I was like, that, that just brought back a whole lot of memories. Um, I actually spent six years as a school resource officer at Jackson Hole High School. And four of those years were spent with Teague Manley, uh, me chasing Teague and Teague running from me. So <laughs> it was really just kind of a bit of a homecoming, quite honestly. Um, both Henry and Teague were very familiar to me in my days uh, as a high school officer. And uh, Teague was just one of those personalities that you, you don't forget. Um, it also had a bit of a calming effect because you know, we made that connection um, and instantly I remember knowing, hey, you know, Teague is a really solid skier and he is really competent and, and, and excels. So these folks are calling for help because they really need it. They know what they're doing just, just from who, who he's skiing with, both Henry and Teague. It's like, wow, we've got some, some qualified, high, highly competent backcountry skiers and, and they need our help. So all that just landed at once and I had to chuckle a little bit about you know Teague uh, identifying himself and I think both of us probably had those flashbacks of the times that we were chasing each other around in high school uh, me doing the chasing and he doing the running you know this backcountry crew they knew what they were doing um, they had adequate supplies they had stabilized the patient they had a splint on um, we knew from the injuries, once Dr. Wheeler was able to really look at those and assess those, 
that it was significant. Obviously, Thomas was in a lot of pain. Um, he was dealing with it very stoically. And, and basically, at that point, your training takes over. Dr. Wheeler was a medical part of it, and, and my job was to prepare the scene so that we could get the helicopter back in and, and get him the heck out of there. I remember Teague calling out to Sheriff Carr. I also know that Gavin Hess, another one of my good friends that was there, had some relationship uh, with Dr. Wheeler and immediately was like, oh, hey, AJ. And as Sheriff Carr mentioned, having that, having that personal touch, I think it really makes a, a pretty significant difference. Thomas was in a, a position of best comfort, I'll say, and we didn't feel like we needed to move him. The device that we chose to use in this situation is what we call a screamer suit. And rather than putting Thomas in a full litter, which takes time, which we didn't have, we, we used a suit that just goes around your person, basically around your body. You sit in it. It's almost like sitting in a, a, a chair that wraps around you. Uh, because of it was a, being a lower leg extremity injury, uh, the focal point for the injury was on the lower leg. We didn't feel like we needed any spinal immobilization or anything like that. So the screamer suit was a better, quicker option. It also tends to be more comfortable for a patient that has a, a lower leg injury. So and it's also a lot easier and quicker to get on. I remember handing that to Dr. Wheeler and uh, Thomas, your friends were very helpful in, in helping get you into that suit and getting that all hooked up as I was trying to prepare all of our gear for the helicopter to come right back in and get us. Uh, the helicopter didn't even want to land because it was afraid that they wouldn't get back off the ground again. So mm. the helicopter's out circling where we're trying to, as quickly as possible, package Thomas for the extrication part. So I'll tell you that uh, we knew right away that with the weather, um, only two of us were going to be able to leave, you know, Thomas and, and one of the rescuers. Um, the obvious choice uh, at that point was to send the medical doctor with the patient. Um, and also, I like to joke, if, if you've ever seen Dr. Wheeler ski, that was another reason to leave me behind and take him out on the helicopter. So we quickly made that decision, you know, that Dr. Wheeler was going to accompany Thomas out on the short haul and that I was gonna ski out with the party. We had to do some follow-up communication with Ski Patrol uh, to let them know uh, our situation because they were backing us up. They were, they were our backup plan. So we were on our own to ski out uh, at that point. And I remember, distinctly remember, kinda it was a, a, a moment of panic. They, they lifted off the ground and as soon as they lifted off the ground, they got about 10 or 15 feet off the ground and something fell from their person. And they went a little further and something else fell. And you're like, what, what part of the load didn't we secure? And what, what's going on here? And it was, it was a bit of a sinking feeling because it's like, wow, that's, that's my responsibility. Was the load not secure? What's going on? What it ended up being was the splinting that his friends had, had so uh, ably put on him. When we put our splint on, that stuff was still kind of part of the whole package. And so we had a, a probe pole that dropped and a jacket that fell out. And I was like, gosh, I want to make sure this, the load's secure, which it was. It was just some of those, uh, those extra items that his friends had used to split the injury. They took off and they went down valley and the quiet takes over again. The noise from the helicopter's gone and you're back in the bit of the storm and then just looking around at everybody and just saying, all right, now we got to get out of here. We just had this group discussion like hey we've we've sustained one significant injury let's be conservative about this and let's get out of here as quickly and safely as possible but i also remember and probably not not the best thing to mention in, in one of these <laughs> these sorts of scenarios i was like this is going to be some epic skiing <laughs> this is really going to be outstanding um i i would not have found myself in this situation if it wasn't for a rescue scenario but you know, looking at Teague and Henry, I, I just saw that grin, that same grin that I saw back in high school when he was doing something he shouldn't do. It's like, this is going to be good. We, we took care of your buddy, and, and he's, in, he's, in a, he's in a better place now, at, at a higher medical care, and he's good. And we're not going to forget about the fun part of this mission. And, and here we go. That is what it's all about. That's why we were, we were out there, because it was absolutely unbelievable. And I'm glad you were able to to find a little light in the situation there and enjoy those turns. I remember 
kind of right as we were lifting off, AJ saying something along the lines of, you know, this is going to hurt. Remember the flight being very fast and being a, a very surreal sensation of just seeing the ground fall away, see all my friends that, you know, we just had such kind of an, an intimate experience together to just leave them behind and be whisked into the air. And I remember just thinking how, how strange it was, how, how alien to kind of be plucked off the ground and removed from kind of such a trying situation. But I don't think I'll ever forget, you know, rising above the, you know, that Southern stretch of Tetons and seeing the mountains in and out of the storm clouds. And, but I remember the flight being fast and, and being pretty painful. AJ was doing his best trying to kind of help me, you know, do a, a bit of a, a crunch and hold my leg, provide some support, but we were really getting buffeted through the air. I think it was just, a, you know, a minute or two before we started setting down on Fish Creek. Um, and I remember seeing some cruisers out there, you know, blocking the road. It was kind of a whole landing team there that helped guide us in and catch us as we landed. I do remember AJ remarking when we landed, I can't recall exactly what he said, but just some exclamation about like, boy, that was an exciting ride. And I guess it was maybe a little unusually fast just racing the darkness because, you know, after the helicopter dropped me off, they still, you know, the helicopter needs to get home. And that's still quite a flight from Fish Creek. So. You know, the the adventure wasn't over for, for the pilot and that crew yet. But pretty quickly after being caught, an ambulance arrived, you know, within minutes, I think. That was really when I, you know, I could relax and got in the back of the wagon and, you know, immediately got an IV going. And that's when, you know, the, the pain meds came and, and there was warmth and, and relief. Diagnosis was an open compound, comminuted fracture of the kind of superior tibia just below the tibial plateau the fibula was was unscathed um it did rip that artery as well as doing pretty extensive soft tissue damage to you know those muscles in the in the upper portion of the lower leg initially it it was slow going um and i was i was pretty discouraged the the crew at Teton Orthopedics in St. John's did an amazing job. Dr. Bullington managed to, to piece together a, a pretty shattered bone um, from the x-rays. And they, they put a, a large plate in about, about 12 inches long. Um, and I think 13 or so screws, you know, up to three and a half inches long. So there's quite, quite a bit of hardware. And I think from the injury and the surgery, which occurred that night, it took almost seven months or so before I took my first step, albeit a little painfully, but was able to kind of achieve a, a, a pretty high level of activity with that hardware in, but there was quite a lot of residual pain and, and I had resorted to using a, a bone stimulator as well as all sorts of supplements. They had determined that it didn't seem like the bone was going to heal together on its own without these outside forces. Again, maybe in part due to foreign bodies or poor circulation or just kind of sheer trauma to, to the area, to the vasculature of the lower leg. And so it had been kind of a long process. I'm very fortunate to have the support network that I do and was able to go home to New Hampshire and, and stay with the folks and rehab there and spend a lot of time swimming in the pool and coaxing my leg back to functionality. I did this past winter go ahead with the hardware removal surgery. And so I've kind of taken a step back, but now I'm feeling much better than I did with the hardware in and can happily say I'm back, you know, mountain biking and hiking. And I'm not sure if I'll ever be able to run again, take hard impacts for a sustained period. And I haven't quite wrapped my head around shoving my leg in a ski boot again um but i'm i'm hopeful that this winter i'll be able to to get back out on the slopes something i've spent a lot of time thinking about how you know when you 
play in the way that so many of us do and risk injury, you're asking these community members, these friends, these family members to really put themselves at risk to come help you. And, and I guess I'm, I would just love a little insight into at, at what point do you say, no, you know, we don't feel good about it. You know, it's a, it's a great question and it's something that we deal with on every rescue and, and you really have to just uh, step back from the, the personalization of it all. We, we all, uh, you know, in particular our 37 volunteers that are amazing folks, they want to help, they want to rescue, but we have to make sure that we can mitigate the hazards um, so that we're not putting any of them in danger. And, and that's just, you know, there, there's some formality to it. Um, we use a color-coded, what we call a GAR survey that, that indicates, you know, every, every person that's a member of the rescue votes on, on what they think uh, the conditions are and, and what sort of hazards out there. And then we talk about, can we mitigate some of those hazards and can we really you know, do this rescue? Is it the safe thing to do? Or are we putting more people in danger? Um, with yours in particular, um, we knew that there was a growing hazard for um, the, the snowpack. The avalanche danger was, was on the, the rise for sure, um, especially with more weather coming in. We knew that certainly if we weren't able to make the rescue, the ski patrollers were going to put themselves probably in, in, in more danger uh, just trying to get to that area. Um, knowing where you all were on Four Pines, there, there are certainly, like you said, you guys were, were, were very competent backcountry skiers, and, and there are sections of that that you can ski even when the high hazard's up there a little bit. And so we felt like we could get in there, and the safest way we could get in there was to use a ship rather than traveling through some probably more dangerous avalanche terrain mm -hmm. to get there. So, you know, all those things, both officially in our GAR process where we're, we're, we're scoring the mission and, and feeling like, yes, can we do this safely? And then in the back of their mind, like, what is this going to look like uh, once we get there? Um, also knowing that, you know, that there were other members of the party that needed to get out safely. There was a potential, as is in every rescue mission, with involves a helicopter that, that you get inserted, but then the helicopter can't come back and get you. So mm -hmm. you have to be prepared for that. So all that goes through your mind, but there's the desire to, to make this happen and, and to really have a positive outcome for the injured folks. And, and uh, you just have to balance those and it, it's real game. And, and that's why we use the incident command structure. We try to separate the command decisions from, from some of the forward ops decisions. And, and even if Dr. Wheeler and I were pushing this mission and wanting to get in here, um, there's folks that are looking over our shoulder that are saying, wait a second, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the 30,000 foot view here and, and is this really safe? So every one of our missions are that way. So we're used to that. I think the one that maybe has required the, the largest mental shift um, was this idea that I guess has been reinforced over, you know, many, many years of playing outside and, and playing hard. And I guess you know, having been a first responder and, and now as a, a wilderness EMT, and I, I had kind of always thought that I would be able to, or my party would be able to manage whatever incidents might arise. I think backcountry skiing in particular has this very challenging nature where you don't always know if you're making the right decision or getting away with an okay decision. It has this kind of false reinforcing element um, where you might be able to ski an unstable slope without any incident. And, you know, you do that so many times and your confidence grows and you, you think you're making sound decisions, but maybe you're not and you never really know until something happens. And I guess for me, I, you know, I thought whatever happens, this group of friends, you know, we can, we can deal with it. You know, it won't ever, it won't ever be me or it won't be Henry. It won't be Teague. It won't be Gavin that ends up in the newspaper or, or needs to call someone for help. We weren't jumping off things. We weren't skiing terrain that was especially technical or challenging. And yet the consequences were incredibly grave at that time. And I think that that is kind of filtered into any of my decision-making now in backcountry skiing that I do. Just the understanding that any sort of injury that 
incapacitates a member of your group is is very serious even if you're 30 minutes from from you know what you feel to be civilization and safety you know it's a, it's a lifetime in the backcountry and coming to terms with the fact that these things do happen no matter how prepared you are um, no matter how competent you you think you might be that sometimes you know things are out of your control and that's not to say that this was necessarily out of my control at least the incident itself what happened which is a, another thing that i've i've kind of come to terms with a little bit i had tried to adhere to a rule all winter and in previous winters particularly in these dramatic mountains that if the terrain is unfamiliar you know you maybe take a step back and just ski it a little more conservatively and i absolutely broke that rule that day and and paid the price they were able to immediately you know identify that rock pile that rollover as you know the potential hazard and that's absolutely what happened with with flat light you know it all it all looks like just an open canvas to me um and i skied right into those rocks for me it was there were so many things to remember i i remember parting ways with teague and henry and at the base of the resort there at the clock tower and you know wishing them well and it was good to see them again and uh uh, I very promptly walked across the street in all my ski gear and my flight helmet, my skis over my shoulder into the ski patrol bar and got a bunch of cheers and a cold Budweiser handed to me and, and <laughs> life, life wasn't getting any better for me. I mean, that, that was, that was the, the pinnacle of my rescue career right there. And, but at the same time, knowing in the back of my mind, you're, you're laying on some hospital table somewhere, probably going through some extensive surgeries. It means a lot, Matt. Thank you. And I can't, express my gratitude to to everyone at Teton County Search and Rescue, the Ski Patrol, uh, all my friends and family. I, yeah, it feels like incredibly fortunate to have all these things come together and have so many willing, competent hands. That's one thing that has really, really stuck with me, just how not only professional and, and capable, but having the personal touch you know it really felt like friends were coming to you know to my to our aid when when we really really needed it this is rebecca huntington and you're listening to the fine line rescue helicopters were not always available in jackson hole but thanks to community efforts teton county search and rescues helicopter is now a priority throughout the year to enable this life-saving service you can make a donation today at www.tetoncountysar.org slash heli hyphen yes. Your donations make complicated rescues like this one possible. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a vision of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to reduce fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. Find out more at backcountryzero.com.